I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2 is where we're, will be where we will be this morning. The end of Matthew 2, we've been looking at the Christmas story the last several weeks, but now we come to the end of Matthew chapter 2. And I'll start reading in verse 13, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will... Do a work among us as a result of your Spirit's work through the Word. Lord, we often take your Word for granted. It often sits in our homes without being looked at until the following Sunday. But God, I pray that you'll give us a hunger and thirst for this book. The more we know about this book, the more we learn about it, and the more we learn about you, and that's what our heart is. We want to know you more as a result of hearing your word preached and reading it ourselves. So God, I pray that by your spirit, you will work through the sermon this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning, we're going to continue in our sermon series on the book of Matthew. And the overriding theme that we've been looking at in this book so far is the authority of our king. This baby that was born in Bethlehem was not just a king, he was the king. He is our king. And the first thing that we saw about our king was his incredible ancestry. You remember that in the very beginning in Matthew chapter 1. His ancestry is filled with men and women of faith. And not only that, but there were great kings that were in his ancestry, in his family tree. So this Messiah, this Christ that would be born to us would have been born in a family that God had poured out His covenant faithfulness for for generation after generation after generation. But the central reason for this birth of this king would be to save His people from their sins. So He would come in a miraculous way. 
He would have an incredible ancestry. He would be conceived in a virgin and be brought forth from a virgin. But the main purpose, the central reason that Jesus came to this earth was to save his people from their sins. So if you want to know the most simple and direct reason as to why he came, that is it, to save his people from their sins. So as we go through the book of Matthew, there's going to be no mystery as to why Jesus is here. No mystery as to why he came to earth and did the things that he did and have the ministry that he had. There's no mystery surrounding that. He came to save his people from their sins. In his own time and in his own way, he would do this. But how he would do this remains yet to be seen. But then finally, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that this Messiah would not just be worthy of the worship of the Jews. So yes, he had an ancestry that was Jewish. He himself was Jewish. But he would not just be worthy of the worship of the Jews. He would be worthy of the worship of the nations. He would be worthy of the worship of those wise men who came from other nations to visit him. He would be worthy to receive all the gifts that they lavished upon him. And all of this tips us off to the fact that this king was not going to be a normal king. He was not going to be a normal king who would have boundaries surrounding his kingdom. Jesus would have a unique kingdom, a kingdom that would span all nations. So everything to this point so far in our series has been to show how the Messiah has come. He came through a virgin, showing us what the purpose was for his coming to save his people and also what he is worthy of. He's worthy of the worship of all the nations. But things are about to get dicey for Joseph, Mary, and this baby. He's directed, remember, to Bethlehem. Mary's pregnant. She's going to have a baby. So the angel comes, or the, the census happens. So they have to go to Bethlehem and the census, take the census and all that, and get registered. And we know all that. Mary has the baby, but now God is going to move them away from Bethlehem. Look down at verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Isn't it incredible that in the first couple chapters of this book, the the angels are incredibly busy, aren't they? They're they're coming in dreams several times so far, and we're going to see it again toward the end. So they're coming in dreams, they're going and telling the shepherds that this Jesus was born, and there's this heavenly host of angels that's singing glory to God in the highest. So the angels are are pretty busy in the first couple chapters of this book. But when you think of the way God is directing Mary and Joseph through the angels, it's interesting to see that God is always a step ahead. No matter what kind of drama, no matter what kind of trouble is befalling this, this couple and this baby, God is always a step ahead, moving them making sure that they're not getting in any kind of trouble. I mean, I don't know if you've ever played chess against someone or checkers or something. It just feels like they're always a step ahead of you. Maybe kind of like the New England Patriots with Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. They're, they're always a step ahead of their opponent. Right? Go Patriots. <laughs> but God knows what is in Herod's heart. He knows what Herod wants to do. He, 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 he knows that Herod is going to make a move to kill Jesus. So God takes this family through the means of the angel and he pushes them out of Bethlehem. So the angel comes 
to Joseph in a dream, tells him to escape to Egypt, and this would have been a 150-mile journey. And so, to give us kind of an idea, 150 miles is from here to a little more than Boston. So it's, it's quite a ways. You don't just say, oh, honey, I'm going to go walk to Boston real quick. It's, it's a trip. So it's not like hopping in your van, going down 150 miles, get there in a few hours. But the angel comes to them and says, go to Egypt. And so Joseph does what the angel tells him to do. And this is in character with Joseph. All along we've seen Joseph. He just, he just does what God tells him to do. The angel comes to him. He says, okay, no questions asked. He does what God tells him to do. So the angel comes to him in the dream, tells him to go. Joseph wakes up at night. He gets his family. He gets his stuff. He grabs the gold from the wise men to pay their way to get to Egypt. And he goes which fulfills the prophecy of Hosea, out of Egypt have I called my son. But sometimes I like to kind of reverse things in my mind. Well, okay, Joseph, you're always obedient. You're always doing the right thing. But what if, what if Joseph said no? How's that? Angel comes to him in the dreams like, I'm good. I'm not going. I'm tired of moving around. But what if Joseph had said no? Think of all the problems that would have come upon this family. So the angel comes to him in a dream, says, go to Egypt, and Joseph says, no. I think we can certainly be confident that God would have spared Christ, but, but maybe there would have been some kind of real bad logistical issues or trouble, or maybe they would have had a close call with Herod. We, we can't know and we won't know because Joseph was thankfully obedient. But what if he wasn't? But you know, that's, that's always the case. Disobedience to God's word will always bring Difficulty. It always brings a, a, a disconnection in our relationship with Him. I'm sure many of you can think of points in your lives where you knew that God wanted you to do something. You knew what His Word said and you were faced with a choice. Am I going to do what God's Word says or am I going to do what I feel like doing? I mean, have you ever been there? I, am I alone? Am I alone? No. But it's important to remember that when we're struggling through those situations. That we're, we're, we're not sure what we want to do. We don't want to follow after what we know God wants us. We, we want to do what we feel like doing. We have to remember that wherever He's leading us, whatever He wants us to do, whatever His Word tells us to do, is the safest thing for us. Whatever the Bible expects of you is the best thing for you. Whatever God is in His will is leading for you is the best place to be. God was sovereign over this situation that we're looking at this morning, just like He's sovereign over every one of our situations. Think about all of our different lives. We've all lived in different places. We've all been different places across the country. Or maybe you've been here your whole life, but God was sovereign over your life here too. But God is just sovereign over all of us, and He's working all of this. And it's just this big tangled web in our minds, but to Him, it's crystal clear. So God was sovereign over their situation, just like he's sovereign over our situation. But he knew that Herod was gunning for Jesus. He knew that Bethlehem was soon going to be extremely unsafe. So he directed Joseph to the safety of Egypt beyond the boundaries of Herod's power. But that's ironic, isn't it? Isn't it ironic to, to take a Jewish family and to put them into Egypt? That's ironic because God had brought them out of Egypt. You remember in the book of Exodus that the, the Jews were enslaved in the book of Egypt. And then he brings them out. He pulls them out of Egypt. They were in slavery there. But God 
delivered them from it. But now Egypt, thousands of years later, would now be a safe haven for this new family. But there was actually already a community of Jews in Egypt at that time that were worshipping in Egypt. So it was a safe place for them. But there are going to be times in our lives where God brings us to a strange place. To a, to a place that you're not used to. To a place that you wouldn't necessarily allow yourself to be. But you're there because it's His will. You're there because He wants you to be there. And if, if you're there, you can be assured that you are safe. So trust in His providence. Trust in His Word. The center of His will is always the safest and the best place to be. So Joseph had to trust God. He had to believe God. He must have had a hundred questions for this angel. I mean, think of all the questions that could even come to our minds. I mean, okay God, if, if this is the Messiah, why don't you just protect him from trouble? Why don't you just kill Herod off? Why don't you just make a safe place in Bethlehem for us to hide for a little while? But that was not... God's plan, and Joseph didn't ask questions. Instead of asking questions, he simply obeys, and so must we. The center of God's will is, as we obey his word, is the safest place to be, and it would be the safest place for Joseph and his family. But as the account continues, King Herod is frustrated over the the fact that he hasn't been able to get his hands on Jesus. So the wise men have gone, all of that has passed, but, but Herod's desire to get his hands on Jesus has not gone away. He's about to get serious about chasing after this one who would be called the king of the Jews. So remember that that Herod had told the wise men, hey, as soon as you find this king, whoever he is, why don't you come back and tell me so I can go and worship him. But the wise men were warned by the angel, hey, don't go back to Herod. He's going to hurt the baby if you go back, so don't go back. To him, So they went to their country another way. And as soon as Herod realizes that he's been tricked by these wise the text says that he, the, he felt that the wise men tricked him. As soon as he realizes that he's been tricked by the wise men, he becomes furious, the text says. But it wasn't really the wise men who tricked Herod, was it? God was the one who told these wise men not to go to Herod. So from Herod's earthly perspective, he thinks that the wise men have tricked him, but really it was God who was the one to pull one over on Herod. So Herod's furious, so much so that he decides that the only thing he can do to get rid of this Messiah is to kill all the male children in the vicinity of Bethlehem who were two years old and younger. So he thinks back to when the wise men came, when the star arose, when they said that the star was up. He does some quick math and he says, okay, a rough number is going to be the age of two. So any child who is a male under the age of two is to die. So you can imagine the chaos, right? The chaos that would ensued on this town. Historically, this is called the slaughter of the innocents which is exactly what it was. And you can imagine just the panic and the sadness that would have been brought upon the town of Bethlehem. What what had just been a town that received so much joy through the birth of Jesus was now going to be a town of sadness and death and murder. So this whole town is mourning the loss of these baby boys. But you have to remember that Bethlehem was small. So it's not like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of babies have been killed. It doesn't make it better. But it wasn't thousands or hundreds. It was probably an estimated 10 to 30 boys were killed. But virtually everybody in this town of about a thousand people would have been affected. 
aunts and uncles and grandparents and sisters and brothers, all of it would have been affected by the slaughter of the innocents. And God knew that this would be Herod's move. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus, he moved them, he pushed them out of Bethlehem before Herod is able to get to them. But, but Matthew corresponds this terrible act of Herod to the words of the prophet Jeremiah, where he says that there would be weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. And that is certainly what it would have been like. Great weeping and great mourning. History records for us that the incredible brutality of King Herod. He killed three of his own sons. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed one of his wives and many others. All because he was afraid that they were going to take his throne from him. So Herod in his later years of life is incredibly paranoid that his throne, his kingdom is going to take, be taken away from him. So to kill 20 babies or so was nothing if it meant that he could keep his throne as long as possible. The killing of babies was a simple price to pay if it meant that he could retain his kingdom. So at this point, he's reigned for about 30 or 40 years in this area. He's in his 60s or 70s, and he's paralyzed that an infant is going to take his throne away from him. Imagine that, a king who's been reigning for several decades over an area of the largest, strongest empire on earth at that point, is afraid of a baby. But God would not allow Herod to get to Jesus. Remember, God is sovereign over all of this. He's directing, he's moving Joseph and his family. He's always a step ahead of Herod. Jesus would not and could not be harmed by Herod. But I think we can draw a similarity between Herod and unbelievers here. In many ways, I, th I think that unbelievers respond to the news of a king in the same way that Herod responds. People who do not profess Jesus as their Savior are comfortable in their own lives with their sin because they get to be king. They get the control. They don't have to submit to King Jesus or to His Word. Herod's response to the fact that there was another person in Israel who was being referred to as a king threw him into a furious rage. And though he had never seen Jesus, he tried everything he could to keep him away from his own kingdom. And unbelievers do not want their personal kingdoms taken away from them. They do not want to be dethroned as king. They do not want somebody else ruling over their lives. And this is why it's important when we preach Jesus, when we share the gospel, that we do not simply preach Jesus as an add-on to your life. You cannot tell an unsaved person that all you need is a little bit of Jesus. Maybe you should try Jesus for a little while and just kind of have him as a co-pilot or something. If he is not your Lord and Master, then really you don't have Jesus at all. But it's not just unbelievers who respond this way to Jesus. Even we as believers, because of the indwelling sin that's in our lives and always trying to pop up, we struggle with this as well. We have our own personal kingdoms. We have a few things that we feel like we need to have control over. Maybe in our, our personal lives where our schedule needs to be perfect. It can't be thrown off even if, it, even if it means that we can go and serve somebody or help somebody. It could be at work. Uh, for us men, I know that's kind of a pattern we see in a lot of men. When, when it comes to work, we might not be able to control our families. We might not feel like we can control our kids or our wives or whatever the case is. But we feel like we can control our work. 
We can, we can pour ourselves into it. We can do all we can to make the job right and to do a good job. We can make it exactly how we want it to be. It could even be here at church. There may be things that we feel like we have to have control over. There are things that have to be done in our own perfect way or the way that this person or that person wants it to be done. But whatever the case is, this is all representative of having our own little kingdoms. We want to be in control. Every day that we wake up, there is a battle for our personal kingdom. Who is going to be on the throne that day? Am I going to try to push Christ off of it and be on it myself? Or am I going to have him reign there that day? But we have to fight that. We have to mortify that. We have to kill that desire by and through God's power. King Herod, he he didn't have the God-given power. To, to not dethrone Jesus. He, he wanted to be on the throne. But we have the God-given power to keep Jesus as king on the throne. But Herod's time had finally come. He spent his last bit of his life trying to dethrone and to kill Jesus. But he himself ends up dying. Look down to verse 19 and 20. After Herod died... An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So at first, Joseph and his family are providentially protected by being sent from Bethlehem to Egypt. But now they are being providentially directed back to their home in Nazareth. So they're in Egypt and they're, they're waiting until it's safe to go back home. And as usual, an angel comes to Joseph and delivers what must have been comforting words. I mean, can you imagine that? You had traveled 150 miles to get away from the hand of Herod. And, and the angel comes to you and says, hey, the one that was pursuing you, he is dead. So Joseph gets up, he grabs his family, and he goes back to Nazareth, which was where Joseph and Mary were originally from. And of course, this town would become... In a lot of ways, part of Jesus' name, he would be Jesus of Nazareth, as the prophets had foretold. So God cares for this family. He's always a step ahead of Herod. Nothing bad happens to them. And they're brought back to their hometown in Galilee to a small town called Nazareth. But the question that comes to my mind, and I kind of mentioned that a little earlier, but the question that comes to my mind as we move through the couple chapters, these first couple chapters in the book of Matthew is this. Why in the world did God choose to do things this way? I mean, hopefully we all trust in the fact that God is sovereign over all things and over our lives. Why did he choose to do things in the way in which he did in Jesus' early life? When I look at the places that God has brought this small family to, to this point, I can't help but think that this is the most inconvenient way to go about things. In the last two chapters, they've gone from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which was 80 miles. 80 miles traveling while she's pregnant. Then it was from Bethlehem to Egypt for 150 miles. Then back to Nazareth again. So all of this just seems like the long way around. It looks like really they're following some sort of prophetical obstacle course. Right? First couple chapters, it's always, and this was done to fulfill what the prophet said. This was done to fulfill what the prophet said. So they're kind of following some prophetical obstacle course in these two chapters. In order to fulfill the Egypt prophecy in verse 15, God says, I'm going to send you to Egypt for a while. In order for Jesus to, to be able to be called a Nazarene, as the prophet said, he brings it back 
to Nazareth. And then you have that whole theme of Herod trying to kill Jesus. But why was this the way? Why couldn't have Jesus or God made this a whole lot more simple? I'm sure for Mary and Joseph, it would have been a whole lot better for them to be able to just say, stay in Nazareth in the first place, get married, have Jesus and all of that. But that wasn't God's way. That wasn't His will. We could be tempted to think the same thing in our own lives. Why does God choose to do the way He does things and why He does things and how He does things in our lives? Why does He do that? And the answer is that when, when that happens in our lives, it's always to fulfill what He has determined would happen in our lives. God ordains to come to pass what He's decided would come to pass in our lives. The difficulties and the struggles and the pain and the happiness and the joy and all the rest are ordained by the hand of God. Whatever God brings into our lives is for your good, for our good, and for His glory. God, why didn't you give me that job that I was perfectly qualified for? God, why didn't you give me the children that I begged you for? God, why didn't you bless us with the finances that we really needed? There are so many questions that we have as to why God chooses to do what He chooses. Sometimes we can find ourselves bitter over the fact that God has allowed something bad to happen or has brought something into our lives that we find incredibly inconvenient. But we have to remember that God is for us. God wants His best for our lives. God always has His best interest in mind for us. The pathway may seem unclear to us, but the pathway has been ordained by him, joys, sorrows, struggles, battles, all find themselves within the sovereign plan of God. God has given us the gospel as the bedrock of our faith. We have an anchor that holds in the surety of Christ. So no matter what God chooses to do in us and through us and for us, we can hold fast to him because of the gospel that he has given to us. So no matter where he brings us, or no matter what he allows to come into our lives, we can remember this very simple truth, that whatever he brings into our lives is for our good and for his glory, just like it was for Joseph, Mary, and Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'll make us mindful of this truth this week. We have folks within our congregation who are experiencing difficulties in health and finances and many other struggles with family and work. But God, I pray that you'll make us and remind us and make us awake to the gospel afresh in in a new way, realizing that we have that as our bedrock. So no matter what comes, we can be thankful and joyful in you because what you've done is for our good and for your glory. Lord, make us mindful of this. In Christ's name, amen.